Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best of motor racing. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Motorsport Podcast for November. And we come to you from London, where it's a very grey and rainy and rather miserable November morning. But to cheer us all up and to get us all going, we have a special guest. That's John Watson. And judging by the number of questions you've sent in, he's a very, very welcome guest indeed. And we'll be talking to him in just a moment. As usual, we have with us Ed Foster, Nigel Roback and Damien Smith. Anyway, first things first, let's take a look back at last weekend, the end of term for this year's Grand Prix season at a brand new circuit in Abu Dhabi in the Emirates. Now, there have been a lot of mixed opinions about this circuit. Um, May as well get mine out of the way. I thought it was spectacular. I thought the light was beautiful and the sunset in in those countries is wonderful to behold. However, very little overtaking and, as usual, not a very exciting race. Great shame. Nigel, your comments there. Well, I I would agree with you. I, I, I mean, you know, it was spectacular. Particularly the uh, you know the hotel with the, the ever changing colours and everything else, uh, and it was you know an incredible amount of work had been done in in, in a relatively short time. But I I suppose the only thing that occurred to me was that um, um, uh, that somebody was on saying, well we you know we have a can-do attitude in this part of the world, and I thought well you do but you also have a can-pay attitude. This is what really what we're talking about. Um, so it was very impressive. Um, I'm not belittling any of it, but I still think, you know, in the end, the play is always going to be more important than the theatre, isn't it? And it wasn't a particularly good play. It was not. John, I mean, uh, former Grand Prix driver, new Grand Prix circuit, you were the commentator for it in the uh, cinema TV show here in London. What did you think? Well, I think I had a different perspective because I was working with Ben Edwards again, which is always a great pleasure. Uh, we work, I think, very well as a team. And I think that's very important because good teamwork, whether it's in a Grand Prix team or in the commentary booth, conveys both to the audience and to the spectators. And we finished the race and we thought, what a cracking Grand Prix. Now, I don't know if we watched a different Grand Prix to the viewers at home or maybe even to the commentary teams that were in Abu Dhabi, but our reaction was, and particularly the last 8-10 laps when Jensen was chasing down uh, Mark Webber and I think through the race there were issues and we didn't have all the timing and scoring that you have if you're on site but our response and certainly mine was that that wasn't bad, we've seen a lot worse The problem is John that there was barely an overtaking move all afternoon, the cars were running miles apart, I mean we can't escape this fact can we? No, you can't escape it, but that's a part, if you like, of contemporary Grand Prix racing. And I think that part of the responsibility that a broadcaster has, and and maybe I'm looking at it through rose-tinted glasses, but certainly I think both Ben and I had a similar perspective of it, is that there's, there's something going on in the circuit. You've got to create an interest, hold the attention, if you can, of the audience. I mean, visually, we can do nothing about it. And for sure, with television, visual attention spans are nanoseconds these days and the problem that television has got with its audience is that how do you stop them going zap 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 on the hand control part of that is you put on a a great visual show but if if the show in itself isn't fulfilling expectations then it's up to the commentary to try and hold an interest either by being controversial or being outspoken or not certainly being bland Damien I mean you, you watched it what did you think I didn't think it was too bad. I mean, the thing about the circuit that was interesting for me was, you know, the amount of comments before the race weekend about the facilities and this wonderful hotel and the harbour front and all that sort of thing. The fact was there are an awful lot of second and third gear corners of that that course. (coughs) Surely that's of more importance really than the facilities. And I think that's something that Formula One has lost sight of, you know. Um, And obviously stark contrast to somewhere like Silverstone, privately run poor old Silverstone, the old airfield circuit compared to that, you just can't compare the two now I think on a Formula 1 calendar there's definitely room for both, 
that you have somewhere as spectacular as Abu Dhabi that's new and fresh and, and was different. And I thought, you know, the fact that the, the long straights um, down the back, yeah. you know, did give something interesting. And there were, you know, there were attempts at overtaking manoeuvres, even if they didn't actually come off. Um, and uh, but you know the, the Silverstone thing. It, you, you just can't compare the two, can you? They're completely no, different. No, no, absolutely. But on the calendar, you know, it's interesting that over the weekend that Peter Mandelson came out and said, "Come on, guys, get 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 your act together." And then in the second sentence, said, "You know, no funding for you from us, from the government." You know, the, you know there's a stark contrast there. Well, the Abu Dhabi's, uh, you know, the Dubai government can do mm. down there compared to what we can do here is just mm. just stark contrast. But uh, yeah, well, overall, I, good a good show, I thought. I, I think, as Martin Brundle pointed out at the time, um, Abu Dhabi would be would die for at least three of Silverstone's corners for, for a start. Ed, I mean, what did you think? Yeah, well, I mean, there's other tracks that don't have much overtaking. You, you look at Monaco, but that, you know, that's, that's one of the races of the calendar. So I don't think that's too important. I think one of the best things about Abu Dhabi was how close the spectators were to the track. And, you know, you could see even f- just from watching on TV how close they could get to the actual action. Well, action, you know, uh, whatever it was. But, um, you know, they, they could get close. I mean, somewhere like Silverstone, you can get reasonably close, but you've still got huge runoff areas. And these new barriers they've come up with have certainly gone some way to, to solving that. Hmm. It actually <coughs> reminded me quite a lot of Valencia. Because, hmm. in fact, at Valencia in places, the, you know, the spectators can are pretty close to the action. But similarly, in Valencia, sort of four or five laps in, the cars are equally spaced. They're all about 50 yards apart. Um, and Singapore tends to be like that, too. So I, I was, uh, what, what surprised me was having the longest straight now in Formula One with a slow corner at the beginning and a slow corner at the end. I, had, I really had thought yeah. we might get some... Yeah. Uh, but in fact, if you take out Jensen's shot at Mark right at the end... Um, and earlier on with um, Kobayashi hmm. and, uh, and Jensen, there really wasn't a, a huge amount of action at the, uh, at the end of that straight. And that, and that was a surprise. Um, anyway, it, it was a spectacular event, uh, even if the racing wasn't uh, terribly, terribly exciting. Um, John Watson, I'd like to just look back with you briefly at the season, because, you know, this is the end of the 2009 season. Um, who was your driver of the year this year? Well, I think on balance, you've you got to put Jensen Button because he won six of the first seven Grand Prix and he is the world champion. But personally, I think the driver that I was most impressed with over the course of the season, in spite of being caught out telling porky pies, is Lewis Hamilton. And I think Lewis, as a Grand Prix driver and probably as a person, came of age because he had a diabolical car for the first half of the year. The team worked, as they've always done, tirelessly to improve it, but they were working from such a difficult basis. The fact that they could win two Grand Prix and Lewis, nevertheless, on many occasions qualifying and in some races, he dragged, I think, a lot out of a car where other drivers may have sat back and said, well, the car's not very good. I thought that was impressive and I thought that there's something in Lewis, having seen him in his first two seasons, step into arguably an equal best or a best car, make fantastic use of it. But when he had a bad car, to come through it and basically keep his mouth shut, not moan and groan publicly about it, get on with the job. And I think on balance, Lewis would be my driver of the year. Hmm. What about your team boss of the year? Presumably it's not Flavio Briatore. Well, Flavio, you know, I think the sport, I don't mean that the public will miss, but certainly the sport will miss Flavio because whatever he did or didn't do, and I think there's a great book there, or certainly <laughs> something that, and preferably unexpurgated, because I don't want to have it all go through the lawyers and have all the good stuff taken out of it, because let's get that little p- into court and have him under oath and see what did happen, because that's the only way we're going to find out the truth. And also, for good measure, drag his dad in as well. And I've lost the thread of the point. What was I saying? No, I think I think John. John, I, John, think John I, I think we'll, I wish you'd get off the fence, John. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, I don't have a problem with Flavio. Uh, I, I was, it was distasteful what did happen, and I suspect that uh, over many, many decades and, and Grand Prix, events, dear boy, events have uh, not been dissimilar. And you know, if you want to go back to the fifties and, and team orders and. Go back to the 30s, Dick Seaman winning at Nürburgring in 1938 or 39, and the whole of the, the, the Reich was there. And, uh, I mean, he wasn't meant to win, and it was almost as if he was going to be, well, I had dread to say, you know, 
I leave that to Bernie. He's more familiar with those times than I am. And uh, it was just a difficult time. So Flavio had to carry the can. I think the punishment was way excessive. And uh, whether he'll win his court case or not, I don't know. But certainly, I think a total ban for life and not just, just being present, but also associated with any drivers that he would manage, which in itself is an, an issue which I'm not comfortable with, but that's what he does. I don't think he's a bad guy. I think Formula One will miss him on many fronts, but what he did involving the team and other people was wrong. Hmm. Okay. Um, the car of the year, John. Oh, it's a tough one because the car yeah. of the year was initially the Braun because, it, again, the domination. The way that the regulations were uh, interpreted by three teams, Braun, Williams and Toyota, and the other seven teams had looked at it and had been advised that whatever way they were interpreting the double diffuser wasn't going to be seen as being correct. Mm. It gave those three teams, but Braun in principle, a huge open goal to, you know, to shoot at, and they shot successfully. Probably the car of the year has got to be the Red Bull because if the cars had run as mm -hmm. rules were the letter rather than maybe the spirit of it, I suspect the Red Bull would have won many more Grand Prix, although the reliability did let them down. Mm. But the performance of that car, particularly in the last three Grand Prix, but other, I mean, Silverstone, I mean, what a fantastic car. When any drive, even a retired commentator, Grand Prix driver, from any vintage or any, even Sterling would have won on that car. <laughs> now, you may have answered this question already, John. Uh, in, in your recent, in your very recent reference to the Picos, but who was your biggest disappointment of the year this year? In terms of team, car, driver, yeah, I, I think I think it could be any of those, really. I, I suppose, ironically, it would, it would have to be Ferrari associated, and with with Kimi in particular, and Kimi came in for a lot of criticism, particularly from my countrymen, but the one that comes from south of the border, the, re the, the, the Republican supporter, to be sure. <laughs> you know, he's a friend of Jerry and uh, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> and then Kimi won a race. But there just seemed to be, I mean, in Malaysia, for example, when he had a problem with the Kears and the car was retired, he couldn't wait to get out of his car, into his civvies, having a, whatever it was, an ice cream. And there was just something. There's a man with a natural talent, probably equal or better than 99% of the field. But for some reason, whether he's lost motivation because the car's not competitive or whether Felipe, in the early part of the year, was getting the upper hand and controlling the team. But that, I suppose, is my... Because the guy is a machine, a race-winning machine. Mm -hmm. And it just looked as if there was disinterest. When it was half-decent, he could put a performance in, but... Too ambivalent, possibly, for me. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, can, let's just go down a side road here for a minute. But everyone's, talking, everyone's talking about him going to McLaren. Everyone says he will go to McLaren. Um, why would he want to do that? Personally, I can't see any reason why he would do, uh, other than if he can persuade McLaren to match the severance pay of Ferrari, which is reportedly £12 million. So if McLaren will match that, then he'll probably go and drive for them. But McLaren, I suspect, are not going to pay Kimi more than they may be paying or equaling what they're paying Lewis. And other than he believes he wants to be a born-again, out-and-out racer, as he was when he joined Formula One and Sabre and then in his early seasons in McLaren, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he just decides to take a sabbatical or just say, thank you, I've enjoyed it, I've had a career, I've won my world championship, I've won many Grand Prix." And I've got other things in my life which I like to do, such as you know, getting unconscious, drunk in, in Canary Islands, and you're lying in the street in the gutter, you know, spewing his <laughs> up. <laughs> well, uh, that, that is an option for him, but I personally think he will stay in race because I think, as you've just referred to, he, he is at heart a real racer. But, uh, you know, t McLaren I th I, is sort of Team Hamilton, is it not, really? I mean, if you aren't Lewis Hamilton, are you going to it's, win? It's Team Hamilton until they employ somebody who comes along who is going to knock spots off Lewis. And I can give you a brief analogy. I'll not keep it too long. In 87, I was at Willie Dungle's training facility in Austria, and at the same time, Ayrton Senna was there, and he was 
just doing some training, getting some checks and whatever. And we were out one day bicycling around the countryside around where the camp was based and I said, John, you raced for McLaren and you know the team and you know Ron and give me some indication as to what you think the atmosphere of the team, well, how would I fit into the team? Hmm. I said, well, you know, I didn't, it's um, very much Alan's team. He's the, the Mimi of the team. He's very, very close friends of Mansour and Cathy Auger, who are part owners with Ron. And he's got the team in the palm of his hand. And he's seen off Keke, he saw off Nicky effectively, he, seen, he saw off me in 1980. But in contemporary times, this is Alan's team. And if you go into the team, you know, you'll go in and you'll find that you'll have to establish yourself rather than expect the team to say, well, we think you're going to be the match of Alan or whatever. And he said, well, actually, you know what? If I went there, I would want to do something totally different. I would want to go in and raise the game. I'd want to raise the game physically and mentally. I want to be fitter than Alain. I want to be tougher and more aggressive in every way. I'm going to take the guy to the cleaners, basically. And that was the attitude he had when he joined McLaren. And the case in point that I think illustrated it was in qualifying in Monaco in, 80, in 88, where the two of them are dueling for pole position. And in the end, Ayrton went in and did one of those laps where I think he didn't breathe at all on the lap. He held his breath and he did a, a lap which was a lap of the gods and came in and took the pole position away from Alain by nearly a second. Alain was standing up in the cockpit of his car in the pit lane talking to all the French press as he was wont to do. Suddenly the time came through that Senna had beaten and Alan was left like little orphan Annie all on his own because suddenly he was yesterday's man in terms of and to cut the long story short, it needs a, a driver of the quality of a Senna to join McLaren to, if you like, put Lewis on his back foot and suddenly find himself not in that wonderful position that Alain enjoyed in up through 84, 5, 6 and 7. Hmm. Currently, I don't know anybody out there that might do that in the way that Ayrton did it. But you know, there are some talents out there, but it's a question of have they got the, the ability and the mental toughness or the mental, you know, that focus that Senna had when he joined McLaren in 87 and, or 88 with Prost. It's that combination that's so interesting, isn't it? The, the, the ruthlessness, the speed, the talent, you've got to have it all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you saw with Michael, when Michael joined Benetton at the end of 81, one race at Jordan, and then Eddie, Eddie, of course, by the way, got a free 360 Ferrari as compensation. And you know what he did the first night? He, got, he took it home, and he opened the doors of his garage, drove the car in. He forgot to realise that the car mirrors were wide on the entrance of the garage door. He took both mirrors off. <laughs> Right, but anyway, uh, we, as soon as PK, sorry, as soon as yeah. uh, Michael got into the Benetton, PK was yesterday's man. Yeah. Interesting. Let's just and that's father, not son. Yeah. Let's quickly go around. Well, the son is definitely yesterday's man. I think we're all pretty much agreed on that. Yeah. Let's quickly go around the table. N Nigel, pick a highlight from the year. You know, either the person or team that most surprised you or disappointed you, or what, what, what will you really remember from this year of Grand Prix? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess I mean I will remember most of all the sort of the shock I felt in the first half of the season mm. that he was this guy who'd been around for ten years and won a single race, had an appalling 2008. Frankly, all right, the car was dreadful, but you know Rubens certainly made more of it in 2008 than Jensen did, and Jensen's head really went down in 2008. Then, you know, come Christmas, he's not even sure he's got to drive. And then, and then he suddenly knocks in six wins in seven races. And the point is that they, they were perfect drives. Yeah. That was the thing. Um, so, I, I mean, as race went by, as each race went by, I thought, yes, this, this can't go on. This, this really, you know, this can't go on. And then we got to Silverstone, and, um, and in fact, I mean, there he was fighting. He was fighting, he was, was he sixth or something mm. at Silverstone? But I thought at that stage, I thought, well, it's just a blip, you know. It's, it's a shame it's happened in front of his home ground. But, you know, we'll, presumably we'll carry on. You know, he'll pick up the winning again, and he didn't. Um, and I thought the odd thing about Jensen in the second half of the year was that, that he's, I think he became tentative, but not actually in the races. Yeah. 
But he, but he gave himself so much to do on race day, yeah. you know, weekend after weekend. Yeah, his qualifying um, really yeah was I mean, his qualifying really was tentative. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when, you know, Rubens very definitely, you know, for a time, had psychologically had the upper hand on him. Were you one of those people <coughs> who was always saying, your kid Jensen will never be world champion, he, he's a playboy. We've heard all that. You know, you know where I'm coming from here. We heard it all so many times. Did, was that your feeling before this year? Um... Certainly, at one time, I felt that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was tremendously impressive in his first season he with was. Williams, <clears throat> but then afterwards, with you know, with Benetton, which became Renault, he he really did look more like a mm. you know, the toys mattered more than anything else. Anyway, so, he's the world champion. But so you know, fantastic. but the talent was always there. Though, sure. that, you know, that was never in question at all. Sure. Rob, you just got. I just it's a question. That in 1999, Jensen was invited to do a test with Prost's team down in Barcelona. Incumbent driver, Jean Alesi. Engineer, Alan Jenkins, friend of mine, many years, engineered my, my car in uh, 83. Alan came back and said, you wouldn't believe, Jensen is awesome. And he got into that car, within a very few laps, was matching, and I think he may well have even beaten Jean's time. And it all came down to how... Jean would drive up to a corner and brake literally at one meter before the corner. The car was so overloaded it was never going to recover. Jensen would brake a lot earlier, get the car settled. So the feedback that they got from Jensen and his ability in the car impressed them. Then he did a test with Williams and subsequently got the drive. It led me to say at end of 99 or beginning of 2000 that I thought based on basically Alan's judgment, which I have great respect for, mm. that here is a driver, a young driver of a natural talent and ability, given a year or two or three years to find his feet, is going to be England's next world champion. But three years later, somewhere, I don't know quite why, but I made a comment that along the lines of where you've been with, he seemed to get lost in the periphery of motorsport, you know, the attractions rather than the actual game. And I said, you know, he's never going to win a world championship. And one year then following that in Canada, where I was working, I had to do an interview with him. And the first thing he said, he said, you said I would never win a world championship. He had the desire to do it. I don't think he knew in himself what to do. And I, I think if he hadn't driven for Ross this year, he would have never won a world championship. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It was the combination of finding something with the car, the team, Ross in particular, clicked. Yeah. Interesting. I think it's pretty uncomplicated. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, if you read the Sunday, no, the Saturday copy of the Times magazine section, my partner said she thought it made made him sound vacuous. Well... Shallow and empty. I totally agree, I'm afraid. It's sad to say, but I totally agree. But he he doesn't have pull good crumpet. For those of you living, for those of you, well, you know, but that's part of being a racing driver, isn't it, John? But maybe we'll come to that a little later in the evening. We can do. Um, listen, but uh, Damien, setting aside Jensen's ability with the ladies, the fact is, you know, for those people listening in different parts of the world, the Times of London published an interview with him at the weekend that really didn't tell you a single thing about the guy, but, but. At the end of the day, as they say in football, he's a racing driver who's done the best thing a racing driver can ever do. He's won the World Championship. And in a way, you know, we can't expect him to be um, Nietzsche or Tolstoy or... No, I mean, I think he's, I think he's refreshing. Uh, in modern sportsmen in general, you know, aren't that interesting. They're so dedicated to what they do. They don't do much else. Um, I mean, anyone who you know who ever met Michael Schumacher would say the same thing. You know, the, the man with the, the greatest number of wins and championships, but he was pretty dull as a character. Um, now, Jensen, one thing that he brought at the beginning of the season was when he was winning, he was very good with the press because he was very happy and open and smiling, and yeah. and you know he he gave good answers, and he's always been he's always been very very easy to deal with, and that. There's a lot to be said for that these days because a lot of them aren't. So, um, yeah. I, I, I think vacuous is a bit harsh. He is uncomplicated, that's for sure. Um, he's a very, very normal guy. I mean, I was lucky enough to follow his career closely when he was coming up the ranks, and 
I reported on his first season in car racing in Formula Ford back in 98. And the interesting thing back then was the hype that um, was uh, surrounded him. We, we heard about him in kart racing, that this, there was this kid with his weird name who was absolutely dominant in kart racing, and he was revered in kart racing, more than Lewis Hamilton was years later. Um, and Lewis has said, you know, he always looked up to Jensen Button as the, the guy to aim for. Um, and he came into cars with this huge reputation, and he was learning every race, made a lot of mistakes... Um, but he ended up winning the, the British Formula Ford Championship and the festival in a very aggressive manner at the end because he was accused during the season of not being aggressive enough, being too smooth, all the stuff we hear about these days. He actually turfed Danny Weldon off at the final corner at Brands that day in, in, uh, in October to win the festival. So, but the thing was, he used to make mistakes, but he'd never make them again. He'd make them once, and you'd, see he was, you'd almost see him learning in the car. And I always, having witnessed him firsthand, I always thought he had a tremendous natural ability. Talking to people who worked with him, you know, everyone raved about him. And it was delightful, I think, this year to see that talent finally blossom and, and it come good. And I think, you know, he had the opportunity that, that fell into his lap almost, thanks to the work of Ross Braun and, and the team at Brackley, who, you know, you, you can't say enough about the work Absolutely. they did to, to, to go from where they were in December last year. Um, but he took that opportunity and he made the most of it. And he had a tough summer, and I agree with Nigel, he definitely tightened up, particularly in qualifying. But he always raced well. He made very, very few mistakes this year. And, you know, he, he drove, I think he drove better than Lewis Hamilton did in Lewis's championship year. And Lewis, I agree with John, John is, I don't know, that Lewis drove tremendously this year. Mm-hmm. A little bit like James Hunt, that 77, Hunt always felt he drove better as champion than he did in his championship year. Mm. And maybe there's a similarity there with, with Lewis that, uh, you know, he did drive yeah. well. But, you know, I think Jensen's a deser- deserving world champion. OK. Well, I, I, I can just add a couple of things about Jensen. The first, the f- two things that I never forget. One is that in his first season, he qualified fourth at Spa. Was it fourth or third? Yeah. Anyway, he outqualified Michael at Spa in his first year. Yeah. And the other thing is that throughout 08 when he was having a terrible time, and he did lose heart, there's no question. What I really admired was, everywhere he went, there were a thousand people saying, isn't Lewis great? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't Lewis doing well? Aren't you pleased for Lewis? And somehow, he never lost his rag. Mm -hmm. And and the temptation must have been enormous. Because, you know, on the face of it, his own career was going down the pan, and he'd been leapfrogged, and he still... Mm. You know, point. he still behaved very well in those circumstances. And so I think said a lot for him. I think it's easy to underestimate him because of his natural demeanour. Because he is, a, on the surface, a very easygoing guy. But he's always taken his job very seriously. I think even during the, the so-called Playboy days, he's always taken, you know, the, the job of being a racing driver seriously. I don't think in the early days he realised just how committed he had to be to, to get the most out of the situation he found himself in. He was so young, I think. That's the thing you've got to remember. He was, you know, he was 20 years old mm. when he was on the grid in Australia. And, and um, you know, he, anyone in that situation would, would probably react the same. We're, we're kind of used to these days young guys coming in and just yeah. being professional. But um, Sure. Um, let's, let's get away from Jensen Button because, you know, as I say, we've got people listening in all sorts of countries all around the globe and we don't want to be too, get too patriotic. Uh, Ed Foster, you've been very quiet, so w- what, ab- what about your highlight or low point of the 2009 season? Um, well, the, uh, the low point, I'd, for me, I have to say it's probably Toyota, actually, and, and Glock, maybe. I mean, Toyota promised quite a lot at the beginning of the year, and they, never, they, they, you know, they got some second places and things, but they never quite delivered. And, you know, the amount of resources they have, and Glock, I thought, at the end of last year, I, you know, I was expecting quite a lot of them this year, and didn't quite see that. Um, and that, for me, I was a bit sort of disappointed about, um, and uh, truly as well. But then again, I wasn't expecting a, a huge amount of him. Um, but yeah, certainly Toyota was was one of the disappointments for me. Actually, I, I don't know if everybody else thinks that's ridiculous. It but seems to be an ongoing disappointment, doesn't it? Mm. It is. It's a, and yeah. Tim O'Glock is a guy who I think is a very capable racing driver, and maybe you're right, he did not deliver as much, but. The, the fundamental problem for me with Toyota is, well, there's two problems. One is ultimately still controlled by the board in Tokyo. And secondly, I just don't understand, and I know that John Howard would disagree, how any team who has to employ double the workforce to get the same amount of work carried out as a UK-based team does can expect 
to compete against the UK-based teams, principally, I mean, Ferrari is not UK-based, but it's got a very UK-based mentality. And I think that if that team was relocated and could break away from the board in much the same way as, let's say Ross Braun gets bought out by Mercedes-Benz, not just 75%, but the whole lot, Toyota would be very wise to go to Ross and say, look, you did a great job for what was Honda, come and do it for us. Because that's what they need. They need somebody who understands how to win races. And with respect to many of the fine people that are employed in Toyota, none of them there have got the ability to influence or affect a team such as Ross has. Or even you know, Pat Simmons. I mean, could somebody not just think to pick up the phone to speak to Pat? Mm. John, that's a very. Uh, can I stop you there for a sec? Because I was thinking about this this morning. I don't know why, but I was. That Pat Simmons is not, I, I believe, and I'll be instantly corrected if I'm wrong, but he's not actually able to come back to Formula One at the moment. And just going back to a previous remark you made about the PKs, surely you cannot exempt either Pat Simmons or Flavio Briatore from the incident that happened in Singapore last year? No, no, they're, they're both culpable. There's no question about it. The difference uh, is obviously in the culpability. Flavio copped the biggest punishment. Pat was given a three-year sentence and PK got immunity. Now, Pat could have opted to go to get immunity as well. But in my view, having done that, probably it would have been less employable than he would be. But you don't have to be on site to be employed in Formula One. I mean, I think... Um, John Barnard, for example. Well, no, 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 I think more of uh, at McLaren in, in the Spygate, uh, Coughlin, mm. was retained by the team, even though he was suspended, in effect, by the team, because they didn't want him getting outside sure. with the knowledge he had and going to another team, even though he couldn't necessarily work for them. But you, you can't just dial out three or four years' work in a particular team. Mm. But do, are you saying you think it's possible for a man of Pat Simmons' ability to be involved with the Grand Prix team, even if he's not allowed into the paddock? Is that what you're saying? I think it's eminently possible. I mean, most of the work done in teams is not done at the circuit these days anyway. Most of it is done, or a, huge, a large proportion of it is done back, in the case of McLaren, I understand. All the stuff is going back real-time to headquarters. It's also being, obviously, seen at the circuit. But... It is convenient to be at the circuit, but how often is Adrian uh, Newey at the racetrack? He's not there at every event, no. and you've got very capable lieutenants running your team. So it isn't always necessary as a technical director or somebody on that side to be present, because with telemetry and real-time whatever, it's only a matter of either a, an internet link or a phone call or however you care to do it. Mm. Okay. Um, Let's uh, finish looking back uh, on the 2009 season. Before we go today, we will take a brief look ahead to 2010. But right now, we're all going to have a bit of a chat with, with Watty, as he became so uh, familiarly known to both fans and, and others during his, his heyday. And, um, John, I think it would be only right to start on a high point, which was your, that amazing drive in, De in, De in Detroit which I know you've talked about a hundred times before, but you made a reference earlier today to the to Senna's lap in Monte Carlo. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Where, you know, your conjecture was he didn't take a breath. I mean, that street race in Detroit where you came from the ninth row of the grid to take the win, was the, did you have a feeling that day as some drivers say, that, you know, nothing could go wrong. It was just 
you were on a some sort of other level? Well, not certainly when the day started, because it started like any normal Grand Prix day, and we had mixed qualifying because the Michelin tyre that was available to us didn't suit our car, which was very gentle on it, very much like a brawn. Gentle on the tyres. It was only when we put a fuel load into the car and we were able to put weight, which then would put more energy in, we would get the tyre to, to do the job it was capable of doing. But Patrese had had an off at turn one and there'd been a sort of minor fire and the race had been stopped. And during that down time, one of my heroes in Formula One, Pierre Dupasquet of Michelin, came to me and said, John, John, you're on the 06, which was the softer, by a very fine margin of the option, the two tyres that Michelin had available. Put the 05 on, put the 05 on. I go, why? Put the 05 on anyway. I looked around for Teddy Mayer, who was running my car at that time, and Teddy was not to be seen. So basically, I just said to the, the guys in the team, put on the 05s, please. Not understanding or knowing why. <laughs> The race restarted, and it then it was a, it, ended, it was it was the race two of Detroit. It wasn't a continuation; it was a separate race. And gradually, I don't know how many laps in the car felt good. I picked up, I suppose, momentum and grip. And the one thing I suppose I learned about my competitors and about myself at that time is that. When you want to overtake somebody, you need to do it pretty rapidly. You don't need to sort of hang around and wait lap after lap. And I managed on one lap to overtake three cars. And my teammate, Nicky, at that time, had been sitting behind those three cars. And Nicky would be a driver who, what you would call it percentages, I'm not, I'm not certain, but he would see situations, analyze it, and stick to the analysis. Hmm. And he, he rationalized that he couldn't get past these three cars. I came up, caught him, passed him, and I said, okay, you know, clever guy, you know, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh And uh, I went zap, 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 and one lap. Oh, have to reprogram my, my brain. <laughs> and then he then overtook, I think it was Peroni and Cheever and maybe Giacomelli, I'm not sure which order. I then was steaming forward, and in the race, the car really was fantastic. I had lots of grip. And I could place the car where I wanted to. I was driving. It was an easy race in terms of physicality. Caught Keke, who was leading the race at that time. Thought I'm in the lead of the race. Came past next lap. P2 minus 15 seconds. Because the difference between race one and race two was that Keke had led at that point when I was stopped. And he was whatever number of seconds ahead of me. So I then had to maintain just my rhythm, which I was able to do comfortably. And on one lap, I think I took three and a half or something seconds out of Keki's, what was his maximum attack lap. At which point, he subsequently said, look, you know, I knew I wasn't going to win. I couldn't stop you. You're unstoppable. But I wasn't doing anything myself. It was just the combination of the car working. And I, did a, I didn't, hit it, didn't shunt it, didn't make any errors. The irony is, if Nicky had sort of had the same maybe more open attitude or open view of overtaking, it could have been him that won that race. As it turns out, when he came up to try and get past Keke, he was indecisive, and Keke then thought, oh, well, sod it. If you can't make your mind, I'll make up my mind. Closed the door, and Nicky sort of clipped him, and or I went off anyway. It was, there was no magic in what I did. All I did was respond to the, the, the circumstance I was confronted with. Mm. And uh, I just drove the car, and it was easy. I got out of the car, I could have jumped in and done it again. That's a shame, John, actually, because I thought you were going to tell me it was a piece of God-given inspiration that you had in your sleep the night before. Anyway. I had that dream, Rob, when I was about 10 or 11 or 12, and it was sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had dreams, and maybe years later you realise, that's that's very spooky. I'm actually in the same identical scenario yeah. I had as a dream years ago. That was the dream. I mean, mind you, I didn't think about Detroit because we didn't have that circuit, but it could have been one of the classics, Monza or Silverstone or whatever, but it turned out to be Detroit. Interesting. Motown City, Rob, remember? Yeah, Motown <laughs> City, man. I love it. Um, okay, uh, you made reference to Nicky Lauda in, in talking about Detroit, and I, I wanted to ask you, and I'm sure that all the others around the table will be interested too, as to whether or not you felt, either at the time or looking back, 
that you were outsight by the man, because he's devilishly clever, isn't he? I'll give you an answer I gave a, a, a journalist recently. Can you not give me a new answer? No, this is a new answer, but it, you're, you're not the first person to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, I think, both in Formula One or motor racing, as in life, it is actually better to be smart than to be honest, or maybe naive. And when I came over from Ireland, as I, you know, whenever I started in 1970, racing in Formula 2 and, and even then getting into Formula 1, I always believed that at the end of the day, it's about the best man on the day wins. And what I didn't appreciate until Nicky joined Brabham in 78, that the... the it's not the winning in the track. That's the, the, the end result. It's the smart guy, Nicky Lauda, Mario Andretti, others you could think of, Jackie Stewart, who understand what it takes and how to get it. And in the case of Nicky, I mean, we had a contract with Bernie, and Bernie was totally honest and scrupulous about... I said, I don't mind who you bring, Bernie. I'll take on anybody you want because I believed I could handle it. What I didn't understand or appreciate is that Nicky is a smart guy. He had had two world championships by this time. He had been at Ferrari for four seasons. He understood politics. He understood how to schmooze, how to work with people to make people come to him. And while words in part can help you get there, it's deeds that confirm, that, that confirm it. And at one point in the season, uh, I went to Bernie and said, Bernie, I'm not happy. I'm, I feel I'm not getting the same treatment as Nicky. I feel that I'm you know, second in the team and he's getting this and that and the other thing. And, uh, I mean, Bernie did the normal thing that Bernie does. He, he brought in, I was talking about reliability, I think. So he, he got on the phone, get Jim Chisman in here now. Jim Chisman worked in my car. Jim, Watson thinks your work's not very good. The car's unreliable. Sort it out with them. So Bernie just devolved of any liability or responsibility, knowing full well that it wasn't to do... He said, John, do you want me to make you number one driver? I'll make Nicky number two. He said, it, it's not... It doesn't matter what's on paper. It's about what the person is. And I would say, in general, over many decades of Formula One, you don't get too many dummies winning world championships. Hmm. And being smart is, in my view, better being honest. And I'll just give you one other example. And in 78 at Paul Ricard, the race following the Swedish Grand Prix where we'd had the fan car, Bernie removed the fan and never raced again. He did that to save Formula One. I happened to get pole position for that race ahead of Ronnie and Mario and the Lotus and, and Nicky. Sunday morning, Bernie came to me and said, you know, rubbing his eyes, John... If you're leading in the last lap, in the last corner, and Nicky's in second place, will you let Nicky take the win? And I was gobsmacked. I was, because I had pole position, I was very pleased with the work I'd done. And this was like a kick in the nuts. It was just, I said, I'm about to go do the warm-up. I can't give you an answer, I'll tell you afterwards. And after, after the warm-up, I said, look, Bernie, I can't. I can't say I will do what you've asked me to do. I can't say yes because it goes against my instincts. But what I've realised subsequently, it took me a long time, 30 odd years to realise, is that if I'd been smart, I'd have said, yeah, I don't think it's a problem, but yeah, yeah. knowing that the likelihood, with the two looters particularly, of Nicky and I being one, two in the last corner of the last, was um, the odds you, the bookies wouldn't have even bothered giving you odds. But because I was honest to myself and I was honest to my team boss, Instead of being smart and saying what he wanted me to say, I reckon that that was probably the beginning of the end of my time at Brabham, which was, what, end of June, beginning of July. Because I didn't see the picture from the team's perspective. Nicky had a very long chance to win the championship, even at that point, even against the might of the two Lotus. And Bernie was, he wanted to give Nicky the best chance to do so. The fact that the little nicked my final set of tyres and qualifying in Monaco that year as well because he persuaded Bernie that he needed one more set of tyres he got held up in his last set of tyres and he knows, ah, Bernie, give me another set of tyres I know I can be in pole position Bernie said, whose tyres are those? Watson's, give them the Nicky <laughs> that's being smart what was the, um, 
What was the difference between Nicky, Nicky pre-79 and uh, post-82 when he came back? Did he change? I mean, I think once he decided he wanted to come back and... He didn't come back for the love of sport. He came back for the love of, of money. Mm. He'd blown his load, basically, uh, setting up Lada Air in 79, 80. And uh, he needed to recapitalize. And one way he could do it, but he didn't just do it for the money. When, when he committed to doing it, he, he set about doing it at the level he did it previously. And I think he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the challenge with cars, I mean, proper ground effect cars. Um, he looked forward to the turbo era. He caused a lot of trouble within the team when the turbo car was late in its appearance, it was meant to appear sometime around the end of May, June but John Barnard who was responsible for the car and then the application of the turbo engine wanted to design a car which was his appropriate turbo MP4 one whatever designation and Nicky went to uh, the boss of Marlboro, Aliado Butzi and bent his ear big time, <coughs> went behind the back of Ron, probably had some collusion from John Hogan, and, uh, and said, you know, you'd, McLaren got a, a cash uplift to develop the turbo car, and we haven't got it, haven't got it. You know, this is ridiculous. So Bootsy got on the phone to Ron, claimed back, I understand, some of the money that was paid, which Ron was not very happy about, and, and effectively Nicky forced the car to appear, which it did do at the Dutch Grand Prix. But it, it, was a, it was a dangerous game that Nicky played because he used his, his clout, let's call it that, within Marlborough mm. to affect a significant and a very difficult time for the team. Mm. Put Ron and John, particularly John, John was spitting bullets. I mean, he was absolutely f***ed about it. Mm. And, I mean, so much so that when the car got to run initially at Weissach in, in Germany and at the Porsche Proving Ground, that Nicky wasn't invited to be present. He wasn't asked to drive the car. I was asked to drive the car. That was done as a little lesson to put Nicky back in his place. But it was Nicky had this ability. He knew what, it, what was required to achieve what his goal was. His goal wasn't to be a racing driver. He just wanted to win another world championship. And that's a part of what I call being smart, understanding and thinking and, and not just getting in and, and doing the driving bit because even more so now today, I think the thinking bit is very important. Mm. And, and certainly, I mean, take Mario and 78. Perfect partnership. You couldn't get two better bandits, Chunky and, and Mario. <laughs> I know, Nigel, you're wincing at this. No, no, no. But in, in Sweden in 1978, when the fan car was running, Mario and Chunky colluded and told the most outrageous lies in my life. Oh, man, it's like a Gatlin gun out there. <laughs> We're going to get killed. <laughs> and it's only because Chapman and, and Mario recognised that this was a major challenge to their potential world championship. I just dive in here to explain to people who don't remember this or are too young to remember it. This is their claiming that the fan car was covering the track with stones. Correct. Just I mean, it was blasting the, the, the falling. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the circuit in Anderstorp was very dusty and gritty anyway, but any car that chucks a, a piece of gravel from a tyre, it's every bit as bad, if not worse, than coming from the fan. And the fact is, if the fan was chucking out rubbish of that magnitude, the fan and its mechanisms would have been destroyed. But, you know, a great partnership. Mario and Chunky were a super partnership. Part of why it was a super partnership was because Colin knew, Chunky Chapman, knew that if Mario were to win the World Championship, the value of Lotus as a, as a brand and a mark in North America would escalate. Mario wasn't going to say, no, no, Colin, I want Ronnie to be equal partners with me. No, 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 Colin, I don't think that's right that I should have an advantage. You know, it's life. Be smart. Yeah. Better than being honest. Yeah, no, no, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, and history shows that, you know, right the way through. Yeah. Right the way through. I mean, it's a, sorry. No, no. I know, I know. I mean, Nigel's a huge fan of Mario, as many of us are. So I just. I, but um, these stories are very interesting. They, they may not be. I suppose they confirm what many of us know, which is that, you know, to get to the top, it requires a certain amount of. Um, ruthlessness possibly apart from anything else but I'm interested John as to whether um, looking back on your career 
you felt that I mean, there's no question about the natural talent you had, no, no question about your natural ability. Um, whether or not, you know, ha, you, do you feel that perhaps you relied a bit too much on that at times to, to, to take you where you wanted to go as a, or not? Well, I think uh, having a natural ability or talent is an asset. But as I tried to illustrate through other examples, in itself, it doesn't equate to success. It doesn't equate to, you may win races, you may win a number of races, but it's about winning a championship. And, I mean, Jackie Stewart talks about driver's mind management. And there are other little sort of cute little phrases that we hear from time to time. But fundamentally, you've got to have a lot of self-confidence. You've got to be, you might call it ruthlessness. You've got to be very smart. And I think that the smart drivers are the ones that by and large are the successful drivers. And I say earlier in the, in the piece that I don't think you see too many dummies winning a, a world championship. Now, you may not be intellectual. You may not read The Guardian, thank God. <laughs> Who do you write for, Nigel? It's The Guardian. Okay. But I mean, you don't have to be of that persuasion. You, know, you don't have to be a champagne socialist to be clever. But you have to have a certain amount of street smartness. And we've talked about Nicky and Mario. Um, I don't know how many others we've talked about. Alain. Yeah. These are clever people. They understand how to get a group of people in a very complicated yeah. context. I mean, even more so now today with this, the size of teams. To be on your side. to be, and, and it's this unspoken or unconscious support. That whatever, as Bernie said, whatever is on a bit of paper, you can have... I can make you number one driver, John. That's what makes you happy. But it isn't going to make the difference between you winning okay. or not winning, or Nicky winning and him not winning. Okay. Um, there's so much we could talk to you about. But another thing that intrigues me is um, <clears throat> whether you do look back. A lot of people don't look back. You know, history's bunk and all of that stuff. I, I, I'm sure that, you know, we can name people who think that. Do you, do you ever, ever sit down, look at a book and think, wow... What a fantastic time I had. What, what great cars I drove. What a wonderful, you know, do you ever do that? Well, I think every day I'm down on the beach at Pagham doing a bit of uh, beach fishing, lobbing, chucking lead, as we call it in the trade. I think, how lucky am I to be able to take time, have the leisure time at this part of my life, based on being involved in professional motorsport since 1970, almost 40 years, not necessarily driving, but with broadcasting and, and areas around that. I think I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world. And, you know, the option that I faced as a child growing up was to follow my father into the motor business in Belfast. And then he would step aside and I would take over. But I wanted to create something for myself that was about my achievements, not... And I think it's always difficult. It's a bit like, you know, the sons of world champions or the sons of, you know, famous racing drivers. How can you come in... And uh, it's always, it must be terrible to be measured against your father, particularly if he's been a world champion. Yeah. So I didn't really have an inclination to be a, a, a dealer, a motor dealer in Belfast. I wanted to be a racing driver. It was a simple dream that I had as a child, and I perpetuated it through my adolescence and you know, teenage years and racing in Ireland. In a sense, preparing myself for what I dreamt would one day become a reality. And it became a reality, not just by good fortune, but because I'd made sacrifices and I had the discipline that I think assisted me in getting through and achieving a level of success, which on reflection, I feel I could have done better. I should have done better. But at the same time, I'm not going to say that overshadows the achievements that I, I uh, achieved because I won five Grand Prix and... Um, there's lots of drivers who've competed who haven't won a Grand Prix. And I'm sure that's very difficult. I mean, I'm sure every time Martin Brundle comments on a Grand Prix and he talks about somebody winning a world championship or somebody winning another Grand Prix. And I mean, Martin was a good driver, make no mistake. But for some reason, why yeah. did he never win a Grand Prix? Yeah. Chris Amon. Chris is the same. Mm. A different generation, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I've, I've met Chris and uh, I see him in New Zealand when I go down there, but I don't know because is, I wasn't in Formula One at that time. And, and Martin was, for example, just beginning his career when mine ended. Mm -hmm. But I'm more familiar with Martin, mm -hmm. and it's not about actual ability behind the wheel. It's something else, and to me, that something else is 
people, as the case of Martin and Senna, everybody was over Senna like a rash. Ron wanted to sign him up. Frank wanted to sign him up. He could have probably gone to any team. Martin ended up at Tyrrell, which sadly at that point was at the back end in reality of its, of its illustrious career. And while he got some good drives, he never got the same breaks that Ayrton got. But he, Ayrton didn't get those breaks because he was a nice guy. No. He got them because okay. there was something that he had yeah. at that level that people believed in and wanted to have a part of mm. in their team. Mm. So I feel, in a sense, a similar. I mean, I'm lucky that I, I did win some Grand Prix, so I've got that sense of self-fulfillment. Sure. But I mean, I'm sure Martin could look back now on his career and realise that had I been maybe, I don't know what it is even now, mm. but I never, he never fulfilled his mm. potential, mm. and he had the potential to be a winner. There's no question about that, but it didn't. Mm. Okay, I think because. Um, We've invited you, the readers, you, the listeners, you out there, all our people, we've invited you to ask questions. So the least we can do is get some of them answered at this point, I think. Um, John Pugh asks you, John, uh, about Philippe Massa. He says that uh, when you were commentating for Bernie Ecclestone's TV some years ago, you remarked how wild Massa was. And, and John Pugh has the impression that you rather enjoyed that, that, that part of Massa. Um, do you think that, he now asks, do you think perhaps he's the most improved Grand Prix driver of recent years? I think, I mean, you might say he's been sanitised and he's, 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 he's left the motor racing asylum in that he has learned, and I think very much in part due to the, the closeness and friendship of Michael Schumacher, it's, it's, it's a question of using more of your brain capacity than we, we normally do. And I think... I mean, Ron, actually, Ron Dennis led me down this avenue many years ago. And I think he calculated or he had read some of that in an average situation. We only use 20% or 25% of our brain capacity. And Ron basically trained himself to try and use a greater percentage. And I think it applies to Felipe Massa. He's been trained and has learned from Michael to use more of the brain capacity that he has to enable him to do a better job, to match, if you wish, his natural ability. And he's got lots of, he's, he's tons of natural ability, flamboyance, flair, and he was wild, mad as a brush yeah, at he times. Was. He, he, I, I agree with you. When he was first around, even in a straight line sometimes, he looked to be not completely... Yeah, a know. few bobs short of a pound at times. yeah. yeah. Steepest curve improvement in recent years, definitely, Felipe yeah, Massa. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but we should have won the world championship, let's face it. Yeah. Well, yes, we, know, we know the reasons why he probably didn't. Rafael Tanvir. Rafael Tanvir. What a great like, name for a racing driver. Well, sounds like a yeah. restoration artist. Sounds quick for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, once it says that we should explode the Alonso myth, John. Everybody raves about Alonso. He's the most complete driver on the grid. He's the best there is. He should be world champion every year. Raphael says, no, 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 this just isn't true, and lists some reasons why. But I'd like really to get your view on this. Well, I'm a fully signed-up member of the Alonso fan club, and I think, that, uh, I think the biggest disappointment I feel for Alonso was that in uh, eight, uh, sorry, 90, what I got, 2007 at McLaren... The team had this little hot rod called Lewis Hamilton come in, who really rocked the team. I didn't, the team didn't appreciate maybe just how quick it was going to be. And Alonso was the, the former world champion who joined the team and who, in my opinion, had the team not sort of sat back on the, on the pit wall, shaking their legs and thinking they're at the beach, you know, having a lovely sunny time. If they'd focused exclusively on Alonso as the title challenger and allow Lewis to, as Francois Sever did with Jackie Stewart in 71, 2 and 3. They would have won a title for Alonso in, in 2007. Arguably, Alonso may or may not still be there. But I'm a fully signed up member of the Alonso Club. I think the guy is the most complete driver in Formula One. I think he understands in many ways, uh, as I maybe explained earlier, what it takes to get the job done, to win a race and to put a championship together. The only concern I have is, is that he last won a championship in 2006, 
and it's going to be four years by the time he gets to Ferrari, and he's going to have to re-establish or have to establish himself in Ferrari. And it will all depend in part as to how Felipe Massa has recovered and what his up or input is going to be once he gets back into a car. I think Alonso will want to have certain structures and conditions in place. I think he'd have been quite careful about doing that before he would have committed to going to Ferrari. I don't think he's going to go there on the basis that there's a contract, you've both got equal status. I think he would probably have some what more in his favour than Massa will have. But he has got the capacity to bring Ferrari back to the level that they were when Michael was there, mm-hmm. rather than where they are presently, um, particularly with Kimi. In fact, somewhere around about 2004, 2005, I think it was 2005, an eminent member of the Ferrari team at that time said, if you had the choice of Raikkonen or Alonso, who would you choose? <laughs> I mean, Raikkonen was further down the road at that time, and, but I, there's just something I liked about Alonso because he had the perception to me and the little bit I'd seen of him I knew of him he was more my kind of driver in a team than Kimi was and I think probably I was influenced by Kimi's uh, lack of discipline or my perception of a lack of discipline away from the racetrack which he of course will not acknowledge he, he has got a clear demarcation between my professional and Formula One life and my personal and, and social life. Now, I, I think the two things are interlocked. I don't think you can have these two sort of Jekyll and Hyde pa- characters. You've got to have one which is appropriate through your personal as well as your professional life. And that's why I felt Alonso was the person. And fundamentally, I still go along with that. Mm. I think the thing, also, the thing about Alonso that has impressed me from the first day is that every time he's in the car, he's on it. Yeah, I mean, I and if you t- I mean, I've talked to Pat about you know the difference between Alonso and other Renault drivers and he just said every single lap the time is there bang 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 you know on and on and on whereas Fissi Keller and people like that you're having to chivy the whole time we need more pace we need you know whereas Fernando never needs to be told that it was quite, on it quite interesting that he, he actually himself admitted he said I might not be the quickest driver on the grid but I am the most consistent and you know for a Formula 1 driver to say I might not be the quickest on the grid yeah. I mean, it's quite a big thing to come out and but say. it's understanding how to win a championship yeah. and winning a championship is by winning or, or getting the most points over whatever number of races 17 or 20 whatever it is it isn't necessarily about being and this is part of how Jensen won the championship he built up a huge you know, accumulation of points. So it's not necessarily about winning all the races, which is ironically what Bernie wanted to change the championship to. Uh, I think it's about consistency over 20-odd races or 17 races. And that's what Alonso's got the ability to do. He will bring the thing home. And most times it's in the points. It may not be high points, but it doesn't matter because it's getting points that counts. The editor speaks now. I was just going to say one last thing on Alonso, Rob. How about this for a wild prediction, given it's November 2009? I think Alonso will be champion next year. In a right, Ferrari. well, we've got that on tape, guys. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, yeah. and Mr. Roebuck, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, it's going to happen, isn't it? Nigel Roebuck and the editor say. Well, I guess, well, I, I, I've been surely sure I not ask the new president of the FIA what he thinks. Ah, well, we would if he was here. What do you think he would think, John? This is Jean Todd, of course, our new president. Are you happy about our new president, John? I don't have any problems. I know that lots of people do. I think that uh, people might consider there's, it's too twee. And I don't think it was ideal that the, the former president and our current uh, commercial delegate in the FIA openly came out and supported one candidate over the other. Yeah. But they're fully entitled to do so. And I think at the end of the day, you've got to look at Formula One the way you look at Olympics or the Football World Cup. You're dealing with federations around the world. And they're the people that vote for the president of the FIA. It's not Max or Bernie that's going to make a difference. It's the, it's the president of the Motor Sport Club of Uzbekistan or wherever it happens to be around the world. And I know we may have a Grand Prix there one day because they're an oil-rich state and we know what happens in oil-rich states. So there are motorsport delegates... I don't know, 130 or whatever number there are. I can't remember the number of them. And they vote for who they believe is the right person. It's not based on the, prever- the preferences no, no, of no. the outgoing president or, the, or, or Bernie Eccleston. No, I, I, well, I can't... Briefly. I, I, I must confess, I, I, 
I hear echoes of yes minister in everything these days, both in the outside world and, and in moderating too. And there's that wonderful phrase of Sir Humphreys uh, about, uh, we'll appoint the right man, minister. Someone who will understand what's expected of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I think I mean, Nigel is, is spot on with that. It is a cynical thing to say, but I suspect in the other sports that I've mentioned, a similar philosophy exists. It's business. And the trouble maybe is that we're all in the business, but we're also all enthusiasts. But what is even worse is that the public are enthusiasts and they pay to go and watch or they watch at home on their televisions or whatever they, however they choose to follow it on, you know, on radio or whatever. And it is... To sense disillusionment Absolutely. from the public is, is wrong. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the biggest lie, and that applies to all global sport today, I suspect. It does, and yes. also this is, we, we are, I'm afraid we've run, out, we've run out of time. In fact, we ran out of time a few minutes ago, but I think we've all enjoyed having John Watson here very much. Even the sun has come out since he arrived, so how about that? Um, but we have, we have finished on a fundamental point here which comes across all the time from the the readers of this magazine, of Motorsport magazine, and the people who listen to the podcast, which is they love motor racing. They want to watch exciting motor racing. They want overtaking. They want characters. They don't want the disillusionment and the cynicism and all of the stuff that surrounds it these days. I think, you know, that point always comes across very strongly. And I think, you know, both you and Nigel have summed that up very well. So, thank you, John, very much. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for your time when you could be fishing. The tide's not brilliant today, and the fishing's crap at the minute anyway, so uh, (laughs) I'm delighted to be here with you all. Okay, well, my thanks to Damien Smith, of course, and to Ed Foster, and, of course, to Nigel Roback. And it's amazing to think that since the last time we were here doing our motorsport podcast, we have a new president of the FIA, a new Formula One world champion, a new and not-so-new MotoGP champion, the man Rossi winning it yet again, and the prospect of another year in Formula One for Rubens Barrichello, which is more than remarkable, and we haven't had time to talk about that today. But thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best of motor racing. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.